left my family. I left my kids. I left my nightclubs, my parking company, $35 million to fight the fight. And both families, Gambino and the Bonanno family, Joe Messina, the boss of the Bonanno family, I helped him against the guys who were ratting against him. He turned state evidence into worldwide. His underboss, Sal Vitale, came in and he ratted. The captain, Frankie Copa, he ratted. And alongside them, there was other guys in their family that ratted. Along with my family, the boss, John Gotti Jr., he ratted. Ronnie Warnham, you have the opening statement. He ratted. He said that I would kill him if he wasn't nice to me. After I tried to help him beat the case. Mikey Scars, DeLonardo, John Gotti Jr.'s right-hand man. He ratted. Greg De Palma, another one of John Guy's made guys. He ratted. Fat Dom, another one of his made guys. He ratted. Mikey Scars had Joe, little Joey D'Angelo and John Jr. had him rat because they turned on him. He had nowhere to go. Another guy, Mikey Scars' brother, well, they, they buried him. So he had a threat. He had to come in. And I won't use the word rat for these guys because these guys were left in no man's land by all the captains, made guys, giving these guys up one at a time. Uh, this is the first studio episode for the Johnny and Gene show. I'm Felix Levine. We got John A. Light, Gene Barello, and our guest, Hootie. Um, I'm excited because we're, we're in studio finally. And, uh, you know, the goal of this show is really everything mafia, true crime podcast related. Um, I'm excited because I think this show has a lot of potential. And uh, you might, might have seen my interviews with, with Gene and John before, and they've done everything in the book. Um, but today we have a, a new guest, Hootie. So... Uh, you know, this is this is you. You were telling us before this is your first time uh, on air doing something like this. Yeah. Uh, how, how's anything it feel? like this? <laughs> how's it feel for you? Uh, first time in front of these kind of cameras. I mean, really, nothing makes you nervous after you go through you know things like we've been through. But just talking to somebody on the outside of the life or in the street is just a little bit different. Now, will you give us you know for the people that we? I just wanted not to cut you off or anything, but I wanted to say something before we got go started. Uh, Gene had mentioned something about a friend of ours that we grew up with, and uh, he was part of my crew. He was the youngest member of my crew. He was like uh, my younger brother. His name was Frankie Boy Rockefort. Uh When I heard of his death, I shed a tear, getting a little choked up now. Uh, I don't really care how his family feels about me now, but they were like he was like my brother. And uh, people say what you said, something about him going bad because he turned... Frankie Boy was the first person to turn himself. I did three cases with Frankie, two bids with him. And he was probably one of the most stand-up guys taking time. He had no business on the case, just like I didn't. Maybe him even less. And he was the last guy left on the street, grabbing money. And they thought he was going to get rearrested or superseded with a new indictment. So two skippers and three wise guys made a decision to go in and get a deal for him and get him off the streets. Frankie Boy didn't want to go, didn't even remotely want to come off the streets. People say he did this, he did that. I was the only person on the case that stepped outside the global plea and became, as they say, went bad because I didn't take the global plea. I separated myself from the case. Frankie Boy didn't have a choice. His brother wanted him off the street. Once the OKs came from above, the lawyers got him a deal. He came in like a man and did his time. Every case, a one to three came in and did it. We were on another case where I did six months. He had a one to three. I went to visit him. The guy had me, he was in the medium. Everybody loved him. Like we used to see him. He used to throw the rock sign up for rock foot, you know. Right. <laughs> right? That's how we used to greet each other. He'd walk on the visitor room floor. The SEALs didn't even know what that meant because they thought all the gangs. He'd throw it up. I tell you, Bloods, Kings, everybody would throw it up. He was friends with everybody. He was always smiling and he was a great kid and he was a stand-up guy. The Rock of 40 name. If I hear anybody, I'm at Aqueduct Racetrack. People see me in the streets in Ozone Park and Howard Beach. Anybody that's something bad to say about that name, I will personally step to them regardless what the family thinks about me. From the father to the uncles to the cousins to the brother, all stand-up guys, Brooklyn family. And I just wanted to get that out of the way because I heard Gene touch on that on one of the episodes. And I don't know where somebody got that from. 
So I think what's also, you know, rest in peace and also what's important for, for our audience is these guys know you. They know what your prior life. But if you could give us just a, a brief background on who you are for the for the listeners, the viewers out there that, that don't know you yet. All right. Well, uh, family, first generation American, Sicilian family, mother and father. Uh, grew up in Ozone Park, originally from Brooklyn. My father and my mother was from Little Italy. Uh, grew up around the life. I thought being a street guy was being a gangster. I didn't know the two could be separate because I definitely would have stood a street guy. I thought that once you were a street guy, you were a gangster because at five years old, I was running football tickets up and down city line from East New York into Ozone Park for the Bonanno family at the time was uh, Vinny Sarah, his boss. And uh, so I just thought the two went together. And I started out in the street. Uh, we didn't really get along with any of the guys that were in my crew. We had a tight little crew at the end before we got pinched in 2011. Um, before I got with those guys at 18, I was really around just in the street selling drugs. I started out selling crack. I really, you know, I was in East New York, you know, black, Spanish friends. I had a pre pretty good, diverse crew. I young, we had 40, 50 kids just running the streets going crazy. So I was just, I didn't, my mother died young. My father died young. I really brought myself up. So I was really just in the streets all the time. No curfew, no nothing, you know fighting in the streets. I could tell you more losses than wins. And I gained a little reputation. You know, I earned, uh, got along with all the older guys, John's age, a little bit younger than John. Uh, and then at 18, what happened was Ozone Park and Howe Beach never got along for years. Stabbings, baseball bats, there was sit-downs with John Cena even before my time between Ozone Park and Howard Beach. And uh, we settled it like uh, 94, 95. Me and an older friend from 88 Park, we went down to Peter Gotti's club, which was John's youngest son, which was John's brother Richie's club at the time, and we put it to bed. No more Ozone Park, Howard Beach fights. I was 18, and nobody from Howard Beach really ever stretched outside their area. Us from Ozone Park, East New York, City Line, Woodhaven, Jamaica Avenue, we were all over. And uh, that's when I got involved with them. I already knew Ronnie, one arm, Trucchio, much respect to him. He's doing life in Lewisburg. Um, so he knew me as a kid and then I didn't know he had a son. The guy I thought was his son was his nephew. Uh, they called him John Pecker. I always thought that was his son. When I found out he had a son, he was my age. Uh, he liked sports. I liked sports. I used to put teams together, just, just make up teams. I never wanted to be a ball player. I was wanted to be a street guy my whole life. There was, I always wanted to go to school and learn so I could be smarter than the next guy, but I wanted to be a street guy all the time. Never a baseball player, a lawyer, nothing like that. So I used to put teams together. And then when that all happened, we came together. We had same football team, same softball team. And then I got into the life. I started bookmaking, fireworks. What was your first, what was your first impression of, of these guys? Or, you know, your, your relationship with them? And, uh, and how do you know of, what was the first time you, you found out who John, John A. Light was? I, probably since I can remember. John ran with the craziest guys around. I actually lived in the apartment that one of John's friends that he grew up with that I got murdered owned. So my family and his family, they were a Sicilian family. They got along very well, called each other like cousins back then. But John had a more notorious reputation. And I'm not saying that now because I met him. I thought John was going to wind up killing me one day or robbing me, or I would have <laughs> had to do the same. But he was too cunning and... Wise guys and skippers didn't want beefs with him. And I knew this at a young age. When I, it's just funny. There was a movie called Wise Guys with Danny DeVito. I don't know if you ever remember that. He goes, you know, that old story when a guy goes out to start the car, everybody closes their windows. When John would come to the neighborhood, that's what people that's would great. do. They'd close their windows, <laughs> their doors. And this was, these were tough guys. These are tough guys I'm talking about. Wise guys wouldn't be around. He'd rob wise guys, that were guys that were with wise guys. And he'd go to them and they'd be like, oh, what'd you do that for? Or I can't do nothing for you. You should have told me you were with me. Or they, wise guys made excuses not to have to deal with him. And the, the reputation was notorious. What, what was your reaction when you would see people kind of like get scared a little bit of you? Or, you know, did that give you a sense of pride, a feel good feeling? Nah, you're not trying. I mean, he's the young, he's a little younger than me. So the younger guys, obviously they see me coming around and they see the violence and you know, they don't know what's going on between the, the families at that point and uh, different bosses and why I'm doing what I'm doing because a lot of this is agitation for other reasons. So if something else happened, maybe I shoot a guy and, 
a retaliation or maybe because I'm instigating something so a money a money earn will come our way and you know they don't know that so I, I think that, that reputation like I said I think uh, once before and this is you know my, my uh, never wearing a mask my face was my pocket so mm. that was the idea was to intimidate everybody and everybody to understand that I'm very violent and did you ever uh, I mean you know get scared that by being too out there, by putting your face out there too much that, you know, it would lead to trouble? Did you fear trouble, getting into trouble with the, the government? No, I didn't. And, you know, I was raised as uh, around Gene's uncles and, you know, the way my father raised me was uh, to kind of be, and people talk about it in some shows they did about me, everybody said the same, oh, he was fearless. It's not that I was fearless. I, ex I accepted the consequences, whatever was going to happen. And I knew exactly what happened to me. I knew there was going to be times when I got stabbed up and I knew there was going to be guys trying to kill me and I knew there was, I was going to end up getting shot and, and I knew I was going to go to jail. It was part of my life and part of what I signed up for. And did you, I mean, we were, we were talking right when we, we met outside some of the, the crazy John stories, but do you have uh, maybe like one of the craziest uh, John Aylard stories that you're allowed to tell, uh, you know, in front of the camera? Of, I you guess know. the Billy Batch story, right? <laughs> it's a fake story in Goodfellas, but when they kill Billy Batch and they think he's dead and they hear him in the trunk and he open the trunk and Joe Pesci starts stabbing him. John goes into a bar and this story was told all over the neighborhood. I mean, I got two going, but this is a really good one. And uh, goes into a bar, guys all pull out guns on him. He's by himself. He pulls out a gun he puts his gun down. He asks the guy for a fair fight. He fights the guy, he beats the guy up. And just being John, if the guy, he picks the guy up and he shoots him in the head. Thinks the guy's dead. Puts him in the trunk of his car and drives away. He hears banging on the trunk as he's driving away. He stops the car, he opens up the trunk, the guy jumps out and runs away. He just got shot in the head with a 25. That was like one of the quick, and I didn't even know him at the time when I heard this story. And I think this story, I mean, there had to be what, 50 people in the bar, right? How many people yeah, in the bar? Yeah, yeah, it was a good 50 people. Actually, you know, when I went in to shoot one of the guys, uh, one of the cousins of Fat Andy Ruggiano was there. And uh, Anthony Rouge used to stay with him pretty tight, uh, Joey Dedone. So Joey said to me, John, you know, you know, don't be a punk, fight him with your hands. You know, and he, and he, he achieved what he, we're friendly, me and Joe, but he, he achieved what he wanted. He wanted me to show that I didn't come here, I don't just got to shoot the guy that I can, and actually the guy wasn't a big guy, so I'm not going to tell anybody he was a big guy. He's actually about my size, but he was a tough little bastard. And after I had the fair fight, I said, Joe, give me my gun back. And he gave me my gun. And uh, I looked at him, I kissed him, I said, see you later, Joe. And he goes, oh, I says, oh yeah, by the way, I fought, I fought him fair, right? He goes, yeah, I says, good. Then I shot him in the head. And then when I shot him in the head, Joe looked at me and he just started laughing. He goes, what the fuck is wrong with you? And I said, Joe, help me pick him up. But it was pouring out and he was bleeding like a pig. And believe it or not, the guy survives. And uh, a couple of years later, he straightens out his life and he gets in touch with me. And he, he wants to be friendly with me, but then he gets killed by somebody else. So, you know, but he was a tough guy. I mean, listen, I always say the same thing. I respect the guys that were getting down and really doing shit like that. Whether they were my friends or not, I gotta be honest about who was tough. This kid was tough. And I think, you know, what's, what's also, you know, with this show and you guys just in your life post-crime, right? I mean, now we can like, you know, laugh and stuff like that, but it's uh, the, the main message, of course, always is, you know, I, and you, you talk about this a lot, is preventing kids from going to the street, right? right. Um, and, you know, now you look back and, and what happened happened. Um, but do you ever feel like, I mean, for you, uh, you know, now they, since they've gotten out, they're really trying to send that message. What's, you know, your message of how dangerous this life is? Because, you know, you know, I mean, I, when Gene was on, on my show, he talked about there's no loyalty really at the end of the day. Um, is that something you agree with? Uh, you know, for, for kids that, you know, unfortunately have to resort to crime, uh, if they're listening right now, how do you tell them to, to kind of stay away from that? It's probably the first time I'm probably going to say something like this, but the streets, I learned a lot from. I had a lot of guys telling me to go in the right direction. A lot of guys I watched put me in the wrong direction. In that life, you don't really have people telling you to go in the wrong direction, the way you know, like they show you in the movies or you hear about it. It's not like that. It's what you see and what they show you, and then that's what you want to follow because you don't know any better. You don't see anybody. You're not looking at doctors and lawyers in the neighborhoods we grew up in. You're looking at gangsters and bookmakers and Shylocks and drug dealers. And how I could put it like this is, I was more towards the East New York side till I was about 13 years old when my mother passed away and then we moved into further into Ozone Park. Everybody I knew that sold drugs and that came up in the streets is dead or doing football numbers, meaning hundreds of years right now. And then 
I also had a lot of friends in Baisley Projects. I went to summer school over there at 223 in South Jamaica. And I knew a lot of Supreme kids that grew up under, you know, Kenneth Supreme. They're all dead. So my advice to them is no matter how bad it is where you are, everybody has a choice. And would you, I mean, I'm kind of curious just for you three in general. Do you think if you guys had all grown up in different areas um, where, you know, graduating college is the most important thing, do you think that would have changed your life? I mean, start start with Eugene. Absolutely. I mean, you know, it's like it was all around us. You know, when I was growing up, that's who's related to who, who's hanging out with who. It's all, you know, I grew up and everyone I hung out with is related to someone. I'm related to someone. It's just the way it is. You all want to be, and everyone, Italian guys, Constantly fight with each other. We fight with each other more than anything. You know that. So right. it, it was just always around us. You know, who was the biggest, toughest guy, who got the most money, and that, that's what just gets embedded into your brain. You what, what do you wish, just even for you personally? I mean, like I said, now I love sports when I was growing up. You know, I'm not saying I would have been a professional, but I just always loved to play sports. You know, I was that's what I loved, you know, growing up. But I wanted the easy money, too, you know, so, and it was right, right next to me. Yeah. Always yeah. right next to me. And for you, John, what do you, you know... Do you wish you almost grew up in a, in a different neighborhood? I mean, how do you, you know, see that aspect of, of your life? Uh, you know, it's really a crazy thing because zip codes, I, I was talked about, is determines your life, I think, to a big extent. But I had a great life also as a kid. So even though it was a bad upbringing, I stayed with his cousin, Albert Ruggiano, since I'm a kid and played baseball and box and I was in card rooms and cigars, and as crazy as it sounds, you know, when I, I talk about, somebody talk about, hey, I really liked your, your your book because you talked about fire hydrants and double dutch and everybody in the old days playing handball, slap ball, you know, stick ball, you know, ring and those things were part of my upbringing. So in a way, I regret some things, but in another way, you can't go back, so I'm not going to regret it because I can't say that I suffered in certain things, I couldn't get an ice cream cone. I couldn't get a pair of sneakers. I didn't have a bike like most kids. So, yeah, that stuff is, you know, but I wouldn't be sitting here teaching kids or helping kids if I didn't have that path. So maybe that's God's path for me, I guess. And what's what do you think is, I mean, you know, anybody can, can chime in on this is, you know, for those kids that are in those really, you know, you talk about zip codes and in a bad zip code, a tough neighborhood who are looking for some kind of way out, you know, do you have any best or one piece of advice for you know if they're listening on on how to if not get away because it's hard to you know move out but to at least stay away from those criminal kind of activities i could touch on that a little bit go ahead i was home on work release and i took the civil service test for new york city I accepted felons and i scored a 98 on it it was a seven-year wait i was back in jail again but there's more opportunities now with city jobs accepting people with felonies New York Transit and all these places, they didn't make that kind of money when guys probably like John were growing up and my father when he first came to this country. Uh, but today, you can make $100,000 a year with a GED, living in the Bronx, living in Soundview Projects, living in Baisley Projects, living in Brownsville. Right. You just, you got to be able to be in something that focuses, maybe a YMCA or something that can tell these kids, you can go down to Lafayette Street, sign up, take a test for $20 and get a job making 100000 a year in five years. COs. State CEOs, city CEOs, they don't, they got GEDs and high school diplomas. These guys are from the projects. Go to Rikers Island. They know each other. They high five and making gang signs at each other. It was insane. I, I didn't even understand it when I got there. This guy's like, I can't beef with this guy. I'm like, what do you mean you can't beef? Well, he's from the projects. I'm in Far Rock. CEO scared of him. I'm like, well, like, you can go out and get these jobs today. It's a lot different. So my advice is just be more aware of what's in the world. Be worldly in your city. Mm. And there's a lot more for them out there now than there was for us growing up. Because I grew up like John. Right. You know, and couldn't afford sneakers and the ice cream cone and who had it better. And But I wouldn't give it up for nothing. Where I am now, I know I'm sitting, I'm trying to change my life, but I had a great childhood. Mm. I didn't know that at the time people had it that much better. I know people had it better, but I didn't realize it because you don't know. And if you don't know, but how can it bother you? And what's the conversation for you with, you know, your family? I mean, I know you mentioned your your parents passed away pretty early on. Yeah. Um, but who was kind of looking out for you? And Just me. Oh, I had wow. a younger sister I had to take care of. So I was in the streets making money at 14, 15. Like I said, we moved out of City Line, close into Ozone Park. And that's when I started staying by 88 Park with their same family. The Ruggiano family had a big pop business. Albert Ruggiano had a huge pop business at the time. Uh, I didn't even know about Fat Andy yet. 
I knew that Albert was like one of the toughest guys in the neighborhood. He was a boxer, a lot of sports. I love sports just to play. I didn't want to be a professional. Uh, so it was always sports, basketball. They had softball games. You would see anybody who was anybody in that era would come and play softball. I remember seeing John pull up in a vet, made guys that are made now. And I'm like, where are these, why are these guys here? Like, I didn't understand why they were paying so much respect, why this park had so much respect. And then I found out that it was Fat Andy's Park. And I started driving at 16 for Angelo. They called him Uncle Angelo, who was another, Fat Andy, his grandfather, was a mentor to. Like Nicky Carrazzo, he grew up with all of them. He just was never straightened out. He was a big bookmaker and a big earner. And I started driving for him at 16. And then I found out who Fat Andy was. And he could have been a boss. And You, you know what the problem is, what he's saying? And, and even, I didn't realize it as a kid. I thought I was doing him a favor. I'd pull up to 88th Street Park. I'd go see Albert and Anthony, the, his brother. And I'd pull up with a Corvette. I'm a young guy that had no money. All of a sudden, I, I bought a car, Corvette Cash, right? So you pull up with a convertible. Everybody's seeing it, the kids seeing it. And I'm influencing those kids to say, look, we can do what Johnny's mm -hmm. doing. And I was actually, I wasn't one of those guys that was a really crazy car buff. So I'd give the young kids and I'd tell them, here's the keys, and I'd let them drive it. Before they had license, like I drove, you know, they're 14 years old, 13 years old, 15, and they're like, serious? I go, yeah, because they used to ask, you know, when kids run up, can I drive it? Can I? And, you know, they think that you're not going to say, yeah, they're just saying that. I go, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and they would drive the car. Now, I just influenced three, five, seven, ten kids to say, hey, I want to be like that. Kind of what happened to me because I was around the Ruggianos. I was around, I was around Luciano uh, Blackie at the card game since I'm a kid. And it's just what he said. It's not what we're saying. It's what the kids are seeing. And this is a problem for the young kids and any of these, you know, hoods that are, you know, the way we grew up in, uh, with not much money. And, you know, it's, it, and we didn't mean it that way, unfortunately. But I uh, dragged a lot of kids in the street by them watching me. Do you guys feel like you're all motivated strictly by money? Mostly. Me, for me, it was money. Then when you get involved, you start seeing everything else with it. But... For me, it was just money. Like when I start, I started off selling drugs for him when I was a kid. I was 16 years old. I was pushing drugs for him. That's how I started off with kind of crime. So that's why it's so crazy that we're all sitting here together. So it's like, you know. It is pretty crazy <laughs> because as much as I thought John would wind up killing me one day or I would have maybe by chance get the jump on him, he was a mentor to me and I, he didn't even know. Why do you think that he would, he would kill you? Because I knew him for tying up tough guys and drug dealers. Not, see, people pick, bullies pick on the weak. John didn't. John went after anybody that was doing the same business that he was doing. So if he found out I had 10 bricks or I was selling 100 pounds of pot, he was coming for me like he was coming for anybody else. So <laughs> at the time, but we had mutual friends without knowing. You know, he had a guy around him that taught me the bookmaking game. And, you know, we had, so it was always kind of like maybe coming close by. I don't know what went through his mind. Um, we actually had to sit down once in Atlantic City. I had to go down there for somebody. And he was telling me to send for white. It was the craziest sit down like ever. I was like standing on the bottom of the steps. He's at the top of the steps. It was during a UFC fight. He's telling me go get wise guys. And I'm like, this guy's telling me to go grab wise guys. Like to sit down with. And this was like 25 years ago. Well, you, I'm just going to interrupt you. Will you like for people that don't know any of the mafia kind of terminology yeah. and stuff. How does it, how does sit down generally work? And how did this sit down? How is this different? John had a guy around him. He was a cop. A little older than John. And he was a mentor to the guy that mentored me for bookmaking. And he comes to me and he's like, John wants to, we were all going down for a UFC fight. He's like, John wants to meet you in Atlantic City. Meet me. What do you want to meet? Now it's like, you know, and I had a lot of Spanish and black friends at the time still in Eastern New York and had this one kid. I called him up. I'm like, listen, I need you to grab the ratchet. I need you to come to Atlantic City. I wasn't that type of guy, you know? So he comes down, have him sit. And now I think John's probably got five or six guys there, guns everywhere, because that was his reputation. You knew. It wasn't like it was a myth. It was true. So, uh, I don't know what's going on, but I know this guy wouldn't set me up, but I also know this guy's deathly scared of John. You know, he talked about him like he was God. And this guy's like 20 years older than him, right? He had to be 20 years older than you know? Phil's about 15 years. He's a decorated detective. Yeah. He actually did some murders with me. Yeah, was that, was one, of the, that was one of the other good stories I wanted yeah, to tell. Yeah, yeah. But so, all right, I said, I'll go down. And there's a lot of my friends being down there. But even though they were a bunch of tough kids, you, you and John, they all grew up under John, they wouldn't pick up a finger to John, so... I go down, I'm like three steps from him. We're about to have a sit down is when someone calls for you, you go, you don't be a punk. A lot of guys that used to go for sit downs got clipped and they knew it. So I was going to the sit down, I was at a UFC fight. I didn't know 
wanted me to start working for him, telling me I got to stop selling drugs. I didn't know what it was going to be. It could have been a million things. But it happened to be there was a guy around me that was suing a guy around him. And that guy happened to be around some other guys that were around a wise guy. It was a whole big thing. So we sit down. It was when one guy sends for another guy in the life. And you meet up and you have a walk talk or you have a sit down somewhere. Usually he's the back of a store. Which his guy Vinny used to love doing in broad daylight in the biz. I had to sit down in a little villa at two o'clock in the evening. Two o'clock in the afternoon with Vinny and Sarah. It's like, can't we like meet in the back somewhere or the driveway at night? This guy used to love to have him like in broad daylight where we had it. There was a lot of people around. So I'm like, I don't think, I mean, I know he shot people in broad daylight in bars. I don't think he's going to shoot me at a UFC fight. <laughs> so, it, you know, the, hey, Philly ain't telling me what the beef's over. It was a load. I'd never really been scared, but it was a load off my chest. It was like, holy shit. And, he kind of like half-assed me in the sit-down. So I was like, wait, was he lining me up? Trying to let me know he knows what he don't know about my other business? It's like, I got you, you can't figure, you, he's playing chess all the time. You know, <laughs> when most guys are playing checkers. And you talk about like the decorated detective. That How, how does that work of your working with a detective? That's my I mean, story. I mean, I don't know if he wants to, you yeah, want you to tell, tell it? Yeah, you can tell it. I love it. That's Go like, ahead, talk about it. That's great right there, fucking cop, bro. <laughs> <laughs> no, the, I mean, the dumbest thing was the guy that got in the car. The guy that got in the car tried to kill John. John tried to kill him. They were having a beef. So they, they're going out. They're drinking all night. They, I, I find out later on, I didn't know this part. John was doing shots of water. They were banging the liquor away. The cop had no clue yet. The guy wasn't even, wasn't even hooked in yet. He's a decorated detective at the time. So they all get in the car. The guy gets in the front seat. John gets in the back seat. The guy pulls away. The guy tells the story to me, the detective, because now he's retired. And this is all public knowledge now. And he's driving. He says, the next thing you know, it's like a movie. Something exploded all over the front of his car. He turns around. The guy's brain's all over his front dashboard. It's not funny, but it is funny. And he says, he turns around. He looks at John. He goes, John, goes keep driving. We're going to kick him out of the car. He shot the guy in the head while the cop was driving. Now, it's either he kills the cop or the cop decides to come in and go bad. And that was the story. And that's how it went. Guy was driving, John shot the guy in the back of the head. The cop had no clue what was going to happen. And he clipped the guy and they dropped him off somewhere in the street. They kicked him out in the street and they went and cleaned the car and the rest is history. So then he starts working for you. That well, guy. He was working for me for years. He was he did uh, drug uh, robberies with me. He was my bookmaking partner. He did beatings with me. I mean, I baseball batted a guy one time. We were on uh, Metropolitan Avenue. I was making a phone call. And a guy drove by. He didn't know my car was running. He didn't know Phil was in back a couple of cars back on the side of the road with my car running. And he, he threw a bottle and he put, put his hand out like he was going to shoot me. And he says, we're going to get you. But he had no idea that I had the car. And I jumped in my car. Obviously, it's a vet. It was already running. And uh, I caught him about six blocks later at a red light. I pulled in front, dragged him out, baseball batted him. And... Uh, Phil's part of Phil's pretty relaxed about it. I, I got to say, I tell everybody the truth. You know, I stay with a lot of gangsters over the years. This guy was a decorated cop, used a gun before in shootouts, and uh, he was involved in DEA and stuff like that. And uh, he had balls. He was just a cheapest bastard around that you ever meet. That was his downfall. He just wasn't. And even when I went on a run, uh, he wouldn't help me. This is a guy, I made him a multimillionaire. He must have put away three, four, five million with me. Before that, he was uh, driving an old Dodge Dart, and uh, he had uh, uh, no money at all. I think his pension at, time, at the time was three-quarters pay at $740 a week. And when he got involved with me, he lived up the block from me. Later on, I moved a couple hours away. He moved next to me also. He stayed with me wherever I went and because of the money. I mean, listen, the loyalty in his life is about the money. And uh, if somebody... if if you're good at doing what you do, which I was, I probably had about 30 cops that worked for me. Wow. So it wasn't a, he was the only one. He was the closest one to me, but I had guys moving drugs all over the city for me. But when you say they worked for you, what, is, you know, what does that really look like? <clears throat> that looks like if I say go set somebody up so I can kill them, they'll do that. If I say we're going to rob a drug deal today, they do that. If I tell them we're going to bat somebody today, they'll do that. Whatever I ask. So... Uh, it's not, you know, this is, you know, it's uh, a dictatorship. They understood that. And, uh, you know, as long as they're working for me, they're making money. And that's the sell point is uh, they're going to make money. I mean, I got a lot of guys that, since they're kids that, we, you know, listen. And these guys been around forever. His cousin, and his, he knows enough stories from his family about me. You know, most of these guys are faking their way through this life. And just what uh, Hootie said. 
you know, these guys, I didn't give a shit what their position was, captain, boss. If I didn't like them, uh, I was going to hurt them or I was going to rob them. And, and the guys that, and I'm talking about the legitimate guys on the street that were just street guys, you know, usually you get about, like I had tons of guys. So I don't know, I had a couple hundred guys because I got guys who have guys who have guys. So in the end up, you got probably two, 300 guys that are working for you. And out of those two, 300, I, I would say 290 of them never did shit. You know, you got 10 good guys that are shooters and, and, and they're tough. The rest is just, you know, sheep that follow along. So, you know, what he's saying is pretty accurate about how it works in the street. And Gene was a wild guy and everybody's always asking me, well, what's such attachment to Gene? Well, because he was wild. And because in that life, whether you agree with that life or disagree, just what I said earlier, I spoke highly the other day on one of the podcasts about a guy who was trying to kill me, another guy, Anthony Tabita. And when guys asked me, why are you speaking highly about this guy? I said, first off, he's out of the life, so am I. But second, I got to give props to the kid because he was wild. You know, I'm not saying he's going to square off and fight, fist fight with somebody. I don't know him that way. But I know that he'll put in some work. So, you know, do I respect those guys even though they're my enemy? Sure. They try to kill me a lot of times. Yeah. So, yeah, I got respect for them. I gave them the, you know, the respect they deserve in that life. Absolutely, because, you know, it's like when I told my story to kid Chris Cagnotta, he was the craziest kid around town. Me and him had beef. I give his credit. He tried to kill me multiple times. Like, I had the same with him. So it's you have to give credit where credit's due. You can't just say, oh, he's a bitch because you don't like him. You have to say, if he was really a bad guy, he was a bad guy. You know what I mean? So that you got you to gotta keep it real. You know what I mean? In, in your generation... Were there, I mean, were there more dirty cops in John's generation? Or oh, we really didn't have no dirty cops. Really? That was kind of like over with, yeah. Wow. You get one maybe here and there. We really didn't have that. We had, we had a retired cop that was uh, kind of dirty. What would, that was what, about what it. What did you do? I mean, uh, basically, like, he was dealing with other people, but we had one guy, he was a retired cop. He was around Vin, and he was basically giving, like, information and stuff like that. But Vin didn't even trust him. So that's why I didn't know it make no sense. <laughs> I think we all have a lot of, like, right. Gotti Jr. had Willie Marshall around him who was a, a, a hack in, in a jail. You know, he's a big guy, roided up. And, and I think we all grabbed somebody somewhere along the line in, in law enforcement that had that edge that you're trying to get. I mean, right. my guy, Phil Baroni, is actually the one that gave me the information that I gave to Gotti Sr. You're going to get pinched when him and Sammy got locked up. That information came through me, so... You know, through my, you know, through my guy and his partner was a driver for, at that time for uh, Morgenthau, who was the district attorney of uh, in Manhattan. So, you know, I had some high-ranking guys that were giving me good information and working with me. How how was like information passed through that during that time? I mean, is it you know you only tell <clears throat> someone you trust that then passes it on to you? How do you know? You know how how does that work between you know the top down? Well, when I was back then in the life, these guys are directly working for me, the cops. So they're only coming to me direct. They're not going to intermediary guys around me. I would never let them have that information. And I would go directly, which Gotti Sr. would say, I'm with the regime, meaning the Gotti family. And I'd bring that information directly to the Gottis, whether it was uh, at that time Gotti Jr. or Gotti Sr., somebody, either one would get the information, or Gene Gotti actually got some on his case. I was trying to help him and Johnny Kinnick beat their uh, heroin case. So we had some meetings, but those conversations between me and Jeannie on his case were direct. Uh, with Gotti Sr., I had one or two, and then some of them went through uh, Gotti Jr. And who do you, I mean, we were, when we were outside, you were talking a little bit about the different kind of crime, uh, you know, gangs that you've been around. How do they kind of differ? Uh, how, how are they all different? And, you know, have you noticed any big difference between, I think you mentioned outside, like, you know, Latin Kings, just straight up mafia. I mean, how, how different are they? Well, I just want to touch on another thing. What I meant was before with the John and the cop, when, you know, now they're married together. When you do a murder with a guy and the guy goes along with it, now you got the body and the guy that you did the murder with. So I just wanted to make that clear. I already knew John had the guy working with him for a lot of years, but you know, you could do a million things. I could do something with you tomorrow and never see you for 10 years. But if we do a body together, I'm married to you for life. Right. That's something that you know, John could probably touch on even better. So that's when you're really hooked in. Right. And something I've never had nothing to do with, but you know that in the life, if you're going to go do something, you got to make sure who you do it with, you got to be married to that person for life. And what's that, like for you, you said, right, like what's that mean, you know, what, what, how does that resonate with you? 
What do you mean as far as like uh, uh, active crime? You mean like that? Yeah, like we're... well, like I knew I knew my my people trusted me because they were sending me on all the on all the bad stuff. You know what I mean? So Ronnie, who I work for, he was sending me out on basically suicide missions, and uh, that's when I knew that, that he really trusted me because he wasn't sending nobody else. He was sending me. You know, so I mean, obviously, yeah, you do a crime like that for somebody, and you feel like, oh, this guy really trusts me. You know. And are there are there still people that you um like talk to from that life that are done with that? I mean, are most dead, locked up? Yeah, most most of the life, like a lot of the Hispanic and Black kids I grew up with in East New York and went to school in Brooklyn, most of them that went that way are dead or in jail, doing big numbers. But um, the difference in the life is the guys in the street coming from East New York and Brownsville, they'll kill you for $25. They, they, there's no God or country in some of these neighborhoods. You actually talked about an area that in Pennsylvania, Carrington or kids. I was, I went Kensington, down to Kensington. Kensington. That place is probably, <clears throat> God don't live there. There's no country there. There's no God there. There's, there's, there's I mean, the, the MO buildings in the Rikers Island where those kids can kill people <laughs> yeah. once they get locked up and not be charged again because they're 730, meaning right. that's the state they're term nuts. for crazy. Right. But like that place he's talking about in Pennsylvania, that's probably the place I've seen that was crazier than Brownsville in the 80s. And Brownsville at the time in the 75th precinct had the highest murder rate in the country. That place down there in Pennsylvania, it was like the Y. You ever see the Y and you see them down in Baltimore like that? Right. Just like that. Well, like you're, you're talking about because he brought up the 7-5 and, and, you know, we're going to get Michael Dowd that's going to come on here right. from the 7-5. Yeah. And he can give us, he'll shed the light on the 7-5 because he, he went to prison for 15 years and the people that don't know who Michael Dowd is, you got to watch that uh, documentary called The 7-5. It's incredible. And y you're aware of this yeah, also know, uh, yeah. uh, about the, you know, I when killed two guys with Frankie Burke. And, oh, yeah. What you and, and we left them at The 7-5 at that precinct. And people asked later on about what <laughs> happened to the bodies. And I left. I says, let Michael Dowd tell stories about that because you're talking about The 7-5. <laughs> you're not talking about, and I mean, Listen, it's just the way it was back then. Nobody even knocked on our door when we killed or shot somebody or we were suspects. You know, nobody ever came around. The only time a cop ever came around is when I, cop I shot a detective's son. And I spoke about this the other day. Uh, Keith Pellegrino, you know, he ratted me out. He told the cops that uh, I had his car and I was with another guy, Joey, and we did the shooting. And, and the reason why I got so much attention, it was because it was a cop's son. And it wasn't uh, just some regular guy. So I took it, you know, I was an extremist back on that life. You know, I didn't care who you were. If you did something that I didn't like or somebody I was going to go after, I would do it. I mean, Phil Baroni, like I said, was a tough guy until we got caught. And then he put a gun in his mouth. He wanted to kill himself. So did one of my other cousins, Billy uh, Queso, that we don't talk about too much. I mean, he robbed Ronnie Warren. He robbed different drug uh, captains in the mob because of me. And they weren't going to do nothing about it. But... You know, when the, when it came time to pay, uh, he wanted to kill himself. So, you know, it's a rough life. Tell him that story, John. Hey. A, a captain in the Bonanno family and a wise guy in the Gambino family don't want to meet you. Well, you know, these guys, uh, you know, different guys of Stevie Noel, I think, might have told this story. But these guys, by, by position, are captains or by acting bosses or bosses. And really, this is not what controls the street. And, and, you know, and I'm a big, you guys know this, I'm a big ethnic guy. So I'll show so much more respect to a street guy, whether he's black or Spanish. And I don't give a shit if he's Italian and they say he's a boss. It doesn't matter to me. I respect the guys that are really from the grind. And uh, my cousin robbed 500 pounds from Ronnie Wanham, who was a captain at the time, and his partner, who was a captain of the Bonanno family. Now, they accused me of being involved in that robbery. I just robbed them prior to that twice, actually. And those two times, I did rob them. And I, I had a Rolex on, and he wouldn't meet me, but he was scared to meet me. And basically, he ain't going to do nothing about it, which he didn't. But the third time, I actually had nothing to do with the robbery. My cousin did it behind my back. But I kept telling both guys, what are we doing on payphones? Come see me. And they were afraid to see me because they figured I, I might shoot them. And actually, they were right. I probably would have shot them <laughs> just because I didn't like what the, where the conversation went that they accused me of of, uh, uh, of uh, robbing when I really didn't rob them. And then I abused my cousin. But, you know, these are the part of the you know, life. My, one right. of my partners before that shot a cop in my after hours, and it was the same thing. I ended up shooting a guy on a payoff because he didn't pay the cop off. 
I mean, these stories are regular everyday stories in our life growing up back then when we were, we were kids. And as the show goes on, we can get in depth with, with all these stories. Right. right. And I want to touch on something. You know, when you're living that lifestyle, like for me, I was so caught up in it. On his case, a lot of my good friends got locked up. And he could tell you this story. It was through the whole building. And it's not, it's just so stu how stupid I was that I go in the federal building at their arraignment. And I tell his head prosecutor to suck my dick right in front of everybody in the courthouse. They chase me out the building. They take my license. I'm on parole. But this is how nuts whacked out I am that I'm so into that lifestyle and everything. I told this guy's like a bigwig now, right, isn't he? No, oh, he's out. He's not even in the... He's a big shot now somewhere else. I told him right in front of everybody. He sucked. But he was a big shot then. And this is how my brain was so embedded into that lifestyle that in the federal building, <laughs> I'm telling a prosecutor... To suck, you know, right in front of everybody. And he's going, he's going, stop that guy. And they chase me downstairs. And everyone's like, what the fuck are you doing? I'm like, nah, he's putting my friends in jail. You know, that's how my mentality was. You know what I'm saying? Our arraignments were like news conferences. I didn't even know he was there. They would, they would parade 20, 25 of us around at the time. That was the <clears throat> big pinch in 2011. And I'm in the box at the time. I'm like one of the last guys to get out. But there was a few other guys. And I hear him screaming, Gene Barulo. I'm like, Gene Barulo, being on this case. He just came home on a state case. What's he... What are they told Gene Barillo? And I'm like, what is, what's going on with Gene Barillo? All over the MCC building when they're talking about Gene Barillo, Gene Barillo, they grabbed him in an elevator, they took his license, he told the prosecutor to blow him, go fuck him. <laughs> I didn't know what the story was. I don't know if he could curse on the pockets, but it was just, you know, you're in the shoe at the time, in, in MCC, it's the shoe, you know, security housing unit, they call it. And uh, I'm, we're hearing stories about Gene Barillo. I'm like, what are you? and I'm bunking with a captain at the time that's crying. I don't even want to talk about that. Guy's crying about his social security. I'm with a captain that's crying. I'm like, this is insane. I'm like, I asked the hack. I said, listen, give me an extra week. Just get him out of here. Take him, take him out now. I'll oh, take an extra man. week in the box. Oh, that's great. You know, the shoe. I, like, it was they just, don't, who, they don't listen, understand. It's, in, it just, it's insane how this life goes. Hey, John, you know? They don't understand. A, a, a position is just like given to you, but a lot of them are really not like what they, they hold. It's not really like what they are. It's just a position. Like, I they're how, really punks inside. I it's, wonder how captains made money. I didn't even know these guys committed crimes, some of them. <laughs> I, asked, I asked John. John gave me a little something, you know, we'll talk about later on in other shows. But I'm like, how do these guys make money? What do they do? Like, I'm out earning every day. Where are these guys? I don't know what these guys do. for. Who's collecting money for them? Are they putting money on the street? Are they selling drugs? They're getting pinched for things I don't even, things I never heard of. You know, then you hear, you know, there's big shots that you hear about, like the Joe Watch stories and real guys that I know, you know, earned and did things and put work in. John, you know, the real guys and you know, the I know a boss that sat on the committee that didn't earn. You know, what I mean, he's dead now, but it was like, you know, I had to go for a sit down once with him. He didn't know the life of sports. He didn't know the life of gambling. He didn't know the life of drugs. And I'm like, I'm sitting down with the third member of the panel of the Gambino crime fam. And they sent me on the sit down by myself. Not even with a wise guy. You can't, you know, it used to be if a wise guy said something to a captain, the captain would say, go get your captain. I couldn't talk. Wise guy, even a regular wise guy, make guy couldn't talk to a captain and another crew. You had to get your captain to talk to him. It was like a whole thing. And I was getting sent to sit downs with bosses. And these guys didn't even, this guy walked in. He says, can you do me a favor and settle it amongst yourselves? Because I have no idea what this hundred times, 50 times. I was amazed that this guy had no clue. And I always try to wonder, and there was another beef later on about drugs, and he didn't know anything about that either. And I just wondered, how, what are these guys making money? Well, that's the, this, this is a real, when I did GQ magazine, you, you know I did GQ magazine. So when I did GQ magazine, they asked me, what do you think the problem is on, on these days? And I says, well, there's two problems. One, there's no structure, just what he said. I mean, this would never have happened years ago. You're never going to sit down. Unless you're somebody like myself or Joe Watts or Jimmy Burke or a, a guy like us that are not Italians but are, are respected as, you know, basically running the streets. But for an average guy that's on the street, they're never going to be able to go sit with a guy that's straightened out. Just, it, it just doesn't happen. So, you know, what I said in GQ is it's the end of, of this world because of there is no structure, one, and two, there's no fear. And you know there's no fear by the way some of these kids are talking on the street because they don't really know the repercussions of the way they're talking because they just didn't grow up in it. They think it's maybe TV or Netflix. Or, I'm not really sure what they think because if they were involved in our day, when you open your mouth the wrong way, someone's waiting down the block for you to get in your car and they'll shoot the shit out of you. They'll baseball bat the shit out of you. They'll stab you. But, you know, most likely you're going to get killed or close to being killed. You know, these days that just doesn't happen because of the change of, of, of life with the systems, the cameras, the security. And it's a different world. Yeah. But, you know, so it's very hard to teach them something they really don't get. That's interesting. 
how how do you feel like for all of you you know just technology and cameras changed everything i well, mean you know i was still doing it that's why everyone said you're out of your mind i was still doing the shootings in broad daylight i was still going bugging i was still bugging out but that's why my my career was short-lived i can tell you that much john do you think you right. could have done everything you did if there was cameras and technology back then you probably still would have uh, it. Yeah, I would do it a different way. I mean, I, you know, I'm not going to promote kids out there because uh, that's not what I do now. But actually, I think about how I would do it, and I know how I would do it, and I think I can still get away with things the way I would do it. But uh, And I'm not going to give learning lessons on how to commit crime right. to kids because I'm actually talking against it. But, uh, I mean, it's a different world. I mean, you can't go out and shoot as many guys as I did back then or batted them or stabbed them because I was nonstop every day. And the guys that really grew up with me, whether my enemies or friends know that I was relentless, right. especially when I was mad at somebody, that uh, if it took me a week sleeping in a garbage can to catch you, I'm going to get you. So, um, I mean, it's just a different world. So you're not going to get away with it. No, not like I did before. And, you know, for, I mean, we've heard, you know, you guys kind of talk about how you refrain now from that life. But for you, how do you, you know, now refrain from doing any of that kind of activity and, and changing your life and how's that process been looking at 40 years i got 12 felonies i copped out to so many crimes on the rico case whatever crime you think could be on rico i copped out to i was involved in everything so there's there's nothing that's lights out for me you know i mean it was hard my first year home i got locked up five times i did three bids on rikers island spent the summer 2015 when i first got home three months on rikers island broke homeless coming out just out of the feds and you know i had a lean i had a judge that was very lenient with me i was getting charged with something probably told about it called career criminal I, that was the only thing i didn't know about in the feds and it actually helped me i beat it but it actually helped me because you know my parole officer at the time wanted to violate me and the judge was like you just wanted to charge him with career criminal he's in the street 38 years 37 years since he's a kid you gotta give him a chance to get back into society it's hard you know and and to not commit a crime is what you're looking at on the back end. Family's gone. The money's gone. You can't bid without commissary. The feds is one of the hardest places to bid because you can't get packages. You got to wear their sneakers. You got to buy their products. It was a different world from doing, you know, going upstate and doing two to fours or anything like that. And it's a wake-up call. You know, you're looking at 40. I'm looking at 20, 30 years. I get pinched. You know, I get pinched in the state. I, I got pinched. I went to population. I never been... In PC, I've never been in WITSAC. I never did anything like that. I've always stood. Uh, when they first took me out, I was in the box. And then from the box, I was fighting. Everybody thought that I was in WITSAC. I was fighting a case upstate. I had a, a warrant in Boston. Um, so I'll probably get killed. I don't know. I So there's a lot of things I got to think of before I commit that crime. And I'm not. How do you, I mean, you talk about that reintegration and how it's super hard. You were homeless at one point. I yeah. mean, how have you done it since? I mean, you, last time you... You got to start from the bottom. A lot of places won't hire you because of your felonies. So, I mean, place, I'm not saying I work at McDonald's, but those are the places you have to work in. I actually taught my first bid upstate. I got a job as a transitional services because I went pretty far in school. I always wanted to go to school. I always wanted to learn. I never wanted to be anything. I did a semester of college, but I wanted to learn. I wanted to be smart. I didn't want to be the idiot in the street. I wanted to have two educations, one in the street and one in the books. So when I got up there, I got jobs right away, library, and it's a very hard job to get I had in the afternoon. And I got uh, transitional services, so I was teaching people what they had to do when you got back out there. And you had one guy saying, oh, you could do this, you can go to college. And then I was the guy saying, listen, you got to go to McDonald's. This is re-entry. And I had to take my own advice. Wow. I had to go start somewhere at minimum wage. I had to rent a room, and I started from there. And then I got my own apartment, and I got a better job, and moved up. In the, I actually moved up where I was and just made more money. And I went in, and a lot of places don't do federal background checks. I'll say that now. My state was closed 10 years, so that didn't come up, and I started at an entry level. It costs like $750 to do a background, a severe background check. So for a minimum wage job, a regular job is not going to pay that. They're going to do a motor vehicle check. And if anything comes up on that, which is a big felony in the state, a murderer, child pedophile, or something like that, then you won't get a job. And I started from the bottom four years ago. I was having been out five years, three years ago. I started from the bottom. I was two years, couldn't get a job, and I wouldn't commit a crime. I knew what I was looking at. I lost my family. I lost my friends. And it's scary for the fact that if you go away, you don't have nobody, and you're bidding, and you got no friends. And in the feds, they mix race, which in, in the state, when I went to the box, they usually try to keep the whites with the whites. And you get along with them, but in the feds, you know, 
they could pay your bunkie to shank you. There's a, you're doing two years, there's a guy doing 30 years with you. There's, in the feds, it's a lot yeah. different. So, you know, there's a guy there with nothing to lose. Like, I was with the guy, his name is Isaac. He was actually testifying against Jimmy Henchman. That's the guy. He was a big drug dealer, but he put the first hit on Tupac. And the guy's name was Isaac. He was in population. He didn't care. He was a murderer from Brooklyn. That's what I'm trying to say. Like, this guy would have killed you for $500. This is the type of guy he was. And he let everybody know. He was telling, he was going in against Jimmy Henchman. And uh, he was just told to go give Tupac a beating. But he wanted the like he he was gonna kill Tupac for his jewelry like that's what these guys like this is what separates street guys in Brownsville the Bronx Harlem Soundview Baisley these guys don't compare and today's there's first of all there's no such thing as mafia in the United States that's in Sicily the life the bagada whatever they want to call it now nobody has any balls you know they're shelving guys that I think should be boss right. you know what I mean like in this day and age you know I think a guy you know graduates college. Can be the boss of a crime family today you know there's still guys in the street like i wouldn't be surprised if i got shot in the back of the head walking down the street one day because somebody maybe wants to make it are you scared themselves. of that these days no because that's how i expected to die anyway mm. how else did you i don't do you think i was good you live in this life i was living the life i was in the streets so i didn't think i was gonna die of cancer or a heart attack someone was gonna clip me someone was gonna try to rob me i was gonna let them get away with it or something was gonna happen you know, I was going to court. I got my teeth knocked out, but, you know, I said something to the wrong guy. I didn't know 88 Park was as strong as it was with Fat Andy being who he was. And there was some real serious guys one day. I was 15, I think. I got my teeth knocked out. I got the guy back. Eventually, I found out who he was and later on in life. But, you know, you got those beatings back then. It's not like that anymore. And for you, Gene, I mean, you're more recently out, right? right. So you have that, like, firsthand experience. I mean, what's... What, you got out in December? Is it? Yeah, I got out in December. Uh, you know, how's that been, that reintegration back into society? Oh, it's hard, man. You know, we, yeah. you know, I'm, I'm young. You know, yeah. I'm still young, so it, it's really hard. You know, I still, I'm trying to control my temper and, you know, the way I am. So it, it's hard. You know, you have to walk away from things and certain things. I, I'm trying, though, you know. How do you control, you know, for people that are in the similar like situation? Like I said, same thing you, you said. I, 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 my career was so short. I have all these felonies already. I'm only 36. I turned 36 tomorrow. Um... You know, I already did over 10 years in prison. I'm I'm on a life guideline. I pled out to 15th and after life. You know, I go back on those guidelines. You mess up. Uh, I have shootings, robberies, home. You name the crimes. I was already convicted of it. So it's like anything you do, it's like it's over, you know, for us. When you're committing those kind of crimes and then you get a second chance and you mess up again, that's it. You know, it, it's over. You know, they told me you cannot commit another violent crime. You will go away for life. So that's, you know, and does, I don't want to be like that. No does more, that, you know? so that, does that scare you? I mean, like, right. does that. Because people could set you up, you right. know, try to provoke you. You know what I mean? So. I'll give you a story, Gene's story. I wanted Gene to be a drug dealer. <laughs> he was just wild. As a kid, he wanted to fight. I don't think he ever wanted to be anything. But a street guy. He, you know, his whole life, he was, grew up around the corner from the park that we grew up in. I didn't know. I knew the Barillo side of his family. I didn't realize he was a Ruggiano also until right. later on in life. I knew that whole side. That's another whole story. But uh, so he comes to me and I'm moving weight at the time. I'm not pushing. I work two hours a week, picking up a pack and dropping it off. That's all I did. So um, I, get, I wanted to give him a couple pounds or a pound. And he would ounce it out. So he was young, you know. And a guy, don't, guy comes up short in three days. He wants to beat him up. He's stabbing guys. I'm like, Gene, you can't do that. That's not, that's not, listen, drug dealers, you got to be a killer eventually. But it was, you know, small time. He, right away, he's jumping the gun. Every week he's at my house, he's fighting with the Caniglis, the Rogerios, the Gottis, this one, that one. He's, what is he, 16? And he, I mean, there's beefs with every name that you can name that's popular at the time in the life, he's got problems with. Because he's jumping this one, they're jumping him. He's went to stab this one. He should, we're coming up, we'll bring guns to my house, Gene. I mean, he, he was just, he, he, one of them guys, you just have to grab him and tell him, relax, sit down. He couldn't do that. So the life of selling drugs, he was going to go towards a life where... John happens to adapt to him from is he was wild. He was wild as he can't say Gene got wild all of a sudden. What happened was they took 127 guys off the street. His guy was the hottest guy in the neighborhood. We were the princes of the city when we were running around. They were chasing us for years. But then they finally got us off the street. There's only one guy to focus on. So he got short-lived. But he was running around since he was a kid like a maniac. I couldn't calm him down for nothing. I tried to make him a drug dealer. He, didn't want, he couldn't do it. It just wasn't his thing. 
three days he wants to stab the guy. Regular normal kids selling pot at school probably in high school. <laughs> he wants to stab. I'm gonna stab him. What are you stab him for? It's an ounce. Ounce of pot, hundred ten dollars. Hey, the best part, wait, the best part is the best part is I go to him. I says, "Who do I need a brick?" He goes, "Gene, oh, cops buy kilos. Don't do it." I says, "Nah, hoodie, it's good. It's good. It's a fucking undercover sting." I go to jail for a direct sale, kilo of cocaine. I got ten bricks in the garbage can. <laughs> the guy next door from me, he comes to me, he's like, "Nah, he took a pound." You know, because he wasn't a drug dealer. Right. He was a street guy. He ran right. the streets, fighting all the time, all the time. And uh, all the burritos were like that, by the way. But and then he comes to me and he's like, "I need a kilo." Where did this guy just step up from? I'm like, nah, someone wants to rob him, but he's a maniac. He's probably got a machine gun on him or something. <laughs> I didn't know, you know. I'm like, Gene, you guys just don't walk up when you want to buy a kilo. He goes, no, they're good. They're good. I says, no, they're cops. You guys just don't want to buy kilos. You, you open up a business, you sell an ounce, you sell it. I try to explain to him because you know, I've been in the game a long time. He's like, no, 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 they're good. They're good. I'm like, nah, I, I don't got it. Don't do it. They're yep. cops. The it. next night he goes direct sale. I said, "Oh, gone, God, he was gone." He, he my grandfather. 19, Twenty? How old were you? Nine, eight, died eighteen. Like my, whole my grandfather, eighteen years old, gone. Yeah. Kilo direct sale. I met him when I went upstate. He was coming down. Frankie, then he passed away. God bless him. Yeah. Rest his soul. Uh, he died. Frankie died right after he came home. He was a great yeah. guy. Yeah, my grandfather. He was Fat cool. Andy's brother-in-law. Yeah, yeah. I knew him before I knew Gene. He was around the racetracks, OTB. Oh God, damn. And, uh, Gene roped him in I, after <laughs> he came to see me. You know, Frankie Downs was a street guy his whole life. Yeah. From what I remember, as when I was a young kid, but he was an older man, but I heard he was always in the streets anyway. But that like I said, everybody was. Everybody was. If you were if you were a pizza guy, you went and played baccarat at the end of the night. Yeah. Or you had a sheet, or you saw fireworks during the summer. Where we grew up, somebody did something. You know, I came up at a Mr. G's pizzeria, another place where John came up from and Mr. G would let me hold card games in the back at fifteen. That's when Ronnie first started noticing me. I had very diverse area. 40, 50 guys on the corner at 16 years old. Crack, coke, weed. And guys upstairs were selling angel dust. Frankie Car Wash owned the corner store. He sold Benzie boxes. He would leave oh, through the driveway not to walk out the front door. Oh, because we God, had 40, guy. 50 guys on the corner just every night. <laughs> every night hanging out. And these guys would rob his store. Go, I mean, we were just wild kids. I mean, and like I said... It, Everybody did right. something. God I mean, Woodhaven, Ozone Park, Howard Beach, South Ozone Park. And then, like, I now I live in, like, a different part of the world. I mean, still in New York, but it's not the same. I mean, kids are getting driven on play dates at 16 stuff. <laughs> to, 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 wrap, to wrap things up, I mean, for you, you know, uh, so you've been out a couple years now. I mean, how, how do you hope rest of life looks like for you, you know? Well, you know, I've always been a hip-hop guy. That was one thing that me and Frankie Boy, we were big Rockefeller fans, big, you know, Jay-Z fans. They hated that. Like, in the life, you know, I used to disappear at music convention, Miami, Vegas. I was big into hip-hop since I was a kid. And, you know, maybe a bar one day, nice hip-hop place, you know, open mic nights, places like... I've, I've, when we had a bar at one time, you know, Ronnie Rowan, you know, wise guy place, so you couldn't make it the way you want to make it. They want to make it. You want to open a place like my place, right? Yeah, Moet's? that I, place. Listen, that, that I actually, that's where I got the idea Florida, from in 2000. Yeah. Oh, I, went down to, I went down to Tampa for the Super Bowl. We had tickets. They were $2,000 a piece, and... You know, Al says, ah, we got this guy, you know, Johnny Eli. I'm like, yeah, I thought Johnny Eli. He's like, he's got a place down here. It's a shit-kicking town, I said. He goes, listen, let's screw the tickets. We had big money. I had 20000 actually, on the Giants. And we get we used to get the Vegas line. We were bookmakers at the time. And the line was for the – they were going towards Baltimore. So everybody needed Baltimore. All the bookmakers down there needed Baltimore. So Al says to me, listen, I'll cover the 20000 out of the office. You break even for the day. Fuck the Super Bowl. Fuck the tickets. We'll go to this place, Moets. Right. Al was going to get involved. I told you, Al. This is Ronnie, one of son, who, uh, you know, I know him since a baby. He was going to get involved in a little piece of my club, but Ronnie didn't trust me. Thought I was just going to take the money, throw him out. <laughs> but you know, I, and and I, actuality, I wouldn't ever did that to his son. But anyway, the club was one of the hottest clubs down I in Tampa in Bay. Buck stayed there. And, I couldn't believe this place was in Tampa. I said, yeah. Holy shit. I love oh, Miami. Yeah, nice. I wasn't a Tampa oh, beautiful fan. Club. This was back in 2000. 20,000 square the foot. The place would have yeah. been beautiful now. Boots. They, had, they used to sell steak there. The steak was unbelievable. I couldn't believe it. It was 30 of us. It started out with five of us going. Because that was like the tight crew was like five of us. Before you knew it, because the whole neighborhood was touched. I mean, there was people down there from everywhere. And before you knew it, we had 30, 40 guys in this Moets. We took the place over. There was nobody else there. We had steaks for everybody. Eating steaks. Had the Baltimore Ravens up the ass. 
It's cheering, going crazy. Guys are winning hundreds of thousands, millions of dollars out of here with 30 guys in that room. It turns out five guys, 30 guys. Nobody went to the Super Bowl. We're all down there for the Super Bowl. <laughs> I, well, I, I own insane. four clubs down there. So, But this place, that, so. this place was like walking to a place in Manhattan. It was it's beautiful. Crazy. You still, do you still own them? No, no. What, you, actually, you know, it's back to the same thing with the life. I, had a, I brought a guy in that was dating Johnny Cornelia, who was a serious gangster's daughter at the time, and Johnny wanted me to hurt him or kill him. Actually wanted me to kill him, and then I convinced him to just hurt him, and then I convinced him, let him go. I'll send him down to my house in Florida, which I did. I gave him my convertible, and uh, he put about 30000 or 40000 in my club, the kid. Uh, he's just a, a, a small-time car thief. You steal tires off cars, whatever. And when all the trouble hit, we put the club in his name, and he started trying to convince my other partner, uh, who my other partner hated him. He ended up dying of a heart attack, so I left him there with the club. We put it in his name. And uh, he ended up uh, trying to give me up, being a, you know, a rat. He wanted to give me up and said, let's just keep John in jail forever. And my other friend said, no, I ain't doing that. And anyway, we were going to hit him. I was going to hit him in Brazil. And then I, when I came home, uh, he went to jail also. Uh, I, I, you know, long story short, the kid's a weak kid. A weak kid that went into suicide watch and nonsense and talks a lot of shit. And just he ended up stealing our club because of uh, the situation I was in. You know, just typical what goes on in this life, you know. Well, uh, you know, Hootie, thank you for, for taking the time to, to come on Johnny and Jean show. Uh, you know, uh, we had lots to talk about. I'm sure there's so many other stories that you yeah. can go in for, for hours. But, uh, you know, I think uh, John, Jean, myself, uh, we appreciate you taking the time. And, uh, you know, wish you all the best in this next life of no crime. No crime. Thanks, Hootie. Appreciate yes, it. It's really good really, seeing you yeah, again, too. Yeah, good seeing you, buddy. Thanks, guys. Yeah.